Welcome to the Life Community Church Podcast. We are so excited and thankful you've decided to join us. We have a very special message for you today that we pray blesses you. Okay, so Lord's Prayer. So stand up and let's go through the Lord's Prayer again. You know, start with a little exercise this year. A little up, a little down, up, down, up, down. Okay. So, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Amen. Can you sit back down? No, stand back up. No, stand, no, go ahead. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> Calisthenics. Uh, you know, kind of get rid of some of that Christmas fudge or whatever it was. I don't know. Somebody gave us some fudge. Uh, Nikki gave us fudge, yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, forgive us our debts. And this was, a, this was supposed to be, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But as I got into it, I can't cover both of those in one week. So we're going to, I'm actually adding, I told Tim, said, I'm changing the schedule a week. I'm pushing the new series another week out. So uh, it'll give you time to be caught up in your Bible reading when we get started. So forgive us our debts. So a debt is something that is owed. We all understand that, right? A debt is owed. So so we need to remember this when we think about this as we're this is the context of prayer so in our prayer he's saying i want you to remember the you know we're saying god forgive us our debts so uh there's a problem in that for a lot of us when you think about it as a christian saved by grace and not by works how many of you are saved by grace and not by works Okay, if you can't raise your hand right now, we need to talk uh, <clears throat> because you're confused. Uh, we're saved by grace and not by works. So, but, so if we're saved by grace and not by works, then how do we deal with sin? Because, I mean, what's the purpose of repentance? And I have people come to me with this kind of question. The reason I want to talk about this this morning. What's the, what's the reason for repentance if my account with God is clear. In other words, I don't have a debt with God. Jesus said, forgive us our debts. And I could, you know, you could respond to him and say, but I don't have a debt because you paid it. Forgive us our debt. So, so what's the purpose of repentance if, <laughs> if our account is clear and I've trusted in the complete work of Christ, as Ephesians 2, 8 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Or Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, as I say, not a part of this creation. So Jesus offered the final sacrifice of himself in heaven, in the eternal creation, not creation, but the eternal realm. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and Calves, I want to say bulls and goats because it says that in some translations. But he entered the most holy place once for all. Once for all. 
by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So this is what we believe. We believe that all sins, past sins, if we got any past sins, we believe present sins. So, you know, sins that are in close proximity, like maybe getting your kids in the car this morning, driving to church, you know, attitude, all kinds of things that are present. And then with the reality that we're probably going to sin in the future, right? All of that, once for all times, have been covered by the blood of Jesus. But although, although all of our sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus, we acknowledge that, right? All of our sins, past, present, and future, are covered by the blood of Jesus. We still sin. Have you noticed? So this is not about our relationship with Christ because that's settled. This is about prayer. And sin affects our ability to pray effectively. And I, I want to show, that's what I want to show you this morning, how sin affects our ability to pray effectively. And I've got a lot of Bible verses. So, you know, you should be used to that by now because uh, that's how I roll. You can sin, we can see through the scripture that you can sin to the degree that it requires some action. First of all, uh, in Galatians 6, 1, Paul says, if you see a brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. So he's saying there's a, there's a place within the body of Christ where you see someone that is sinning, you should lovingly go to them while you're also with humility, recognizing that you could easily fall in sin, that you would go to them and say, hey, brother, sister, uh, here's an area that I think you need to think about. And then Jesus said the way we deal with that is that we need to get the log out of our own eye before we try to get the moat, the speck out of somebody else's eye. But he didn't say don't help the person get the speck out of their eye. He said just deal with your stuff first. So there are situations where we should lovingly endeavor to correct people that we love and that we're committed to, that we're, you know, and uh, that's part of being a family. I mean, you know, did, when you got married, did you get corrected? I got corrected. This, when I put this on this morning, there was a, there was a debate. It wasn't a debate because I asked her. I said, okay, unbuttoned, it, you know, it spreads out, makes my belly show more. So I didn't want it that way. I said, so I'm going to button it up like this. She said, nope. Because then your shirt is sticking out of the bottom. So, I don't trust your fashion sense. Okay. All right. Here we go. So, but, it, but isn't that the reality of family? But family, you, you love each other and you correct each other and you help each other. And the same is true as in the body of Christ and the family of God. When someone sins and they're hurting themselves and others, we should lovingly endeavor to gently correct them, right? 
And then Paul talks about the, Jesus, I'm sorry, I skipped one. Jesus calls for the whole lay of the sea and church to repent in the book of Revelation. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. And he is rebuking them for being lukewarm. He says, you're lukewarm and you need to repent and, and get back on the ball again, get with it. Then Paul calls for the whole Corinthian church to repent. The, this is the whole chapter that I'm going to read, so you know, get ready. Uh, it's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you and of the kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man sleeping with his father's wife. Are you proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out, uh, and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ of the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the, on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the people of this world or who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you may not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Good verse for us to remember all the time. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So Paul says to the Corinthians, listen, I want you to repent. And he's actually talking to the whole bunch. He said, you've got a, you've got a man that needs to repent because he's having sex with his father's wife. See, even the pagans don't tolerate that. So you need to rebuke him. And if he doesn't repent, you need to kick him out of the church. Paul says, I'm going to turn him over to Satan. Whereas I'm going to ask for the protection of the Lord to be removed so that he will for a season be in difficulty. And he does repent. We'll see later. He does repent. But then he's saying to the whole, the whole church, listen, you've been tolerant of this. You've been bragging about your tolerance. You shouldn't have been tolerant. This is not an area where you should be tolerant. You should not have been tolerant. So he's calling them so repentant. So, so uh, clearly there are places in Scripture, even for believers who are saved by grace, through faith, that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, clearly there's a place for us for repentance. And so we're going to look and learn about repentance from a really great sinner, David, from the Old Testament. King David was a great sinner. 
Psalm 51.1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and only you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, and you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb, and you taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Let Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will be turned back to you. Now, the context of this psalm, Psalm 51, the occasion of this is that one night after David had become king, after Saul was dead and he had finally risen to prominence as king of Judah, he was on the roof of his house. He looked out across the rooftops in Jerusalem, and there was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, taking a bath on the rooftop. And David, seeing her, lusted after her, and he sent for her. And instead of averting his eyes, possibly going into his seven other wives and ten concubines for the intimacy that he felt he needed in that moment. He sent for Bathsheba, took advantage of the power that he had over her as king, and essentially raped her. He, she became pregnant. And when he couldn't hide it, he had Uriah the Hittite, her husband, her noble husband, honorable husband, who had sacrificed and fought for Dave, on David's behalf for years. He had her husband killed in battle to cover it up. And he thought he got away with it. And one day, Nathan, the prophet, shows up at his house, and he tells him a story. He said there were two men. David doesn't know it's a story. He thinks it's a real event. And he's going to act like king and make a judgment on this story. So Nathan said there were two men. There was a rich man and a poor man. He said and the poor man had one lamb. And he loved that lamb, and he treated it like family. He raised it in his household. And it ate at his table. Said one day the rich man had guests. So he came and he took the poor man's lamb and fed it to his guests. And David, in anger, said, That man must die. And the prophet Nathan said, You are the man. You are that man. So in that moment, David repents because he's done a horrible thing. He's done multiple horrible things. And in his repentance, we learn some things about life change, about prayer, about overcoming life-changing sin and failures. So the first step is, in life-changing repentance, is that you have to get out of denial. He says in verse Five, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother deceived me. David is not saying something about his mother here. 
He's not saying something about sex being dirty or about the method of his conception. David is saying the element of sin is where I have always lived. He's saying, I have always been this way. I have been sinful from birth. Derek Kinder, in his commentary on this verse, said this. This crime of murder, David sees, was no freak accident, no freak event. It was in character. An extreme expression of the warped creature he had always been since he was born. In Psalm 18, David is writing a psalm about his victory over Saul. This is when, right after David has been able to overcome Saul is dead. And so now David has ascended to the throne. And he writes this psalm. And the psalm is a good psalm. But I want you to notice something in Psalm 18, verses 20. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands. He has rewarded me. For I've kept the ways of the Lord. I'm not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him. And I have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me. According to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands. In his sight. Now. There's a great deal of denial in that. It's a belief that David is thinking in this moment. In this moment. He's thinking in this moment. And we write Psalm 18. Because he had done good, he, was always, he would always do good. And that he was the source of that goodness. It was his righteousness. It wasn't God's righteousness. It wasn't God's faithfulness. It wasn't God's patience. It wasn't God's endurance. It wasn't God's grace. It wasn't God's goodness. It was his righteousness. So somehow, it was, it was, he had believed, and this, we struggle with this, he believed that he had created a debt by his behavior that God owed him a gift. I've been good. I mean, does God owe us for doing the right thing? I didn't lie to you, so now you owe me something. I didn't deceive you, now you owe me something. I, I, look, I did the right, I know, I know it's where our kids are. I cleaned my room, so now you owe me. But, so it's, it's, that, it's that little seed of self-deception that is, that is manifesting on the rooftop. It's that little seed of, I've done good, God, you owe me. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool shall be danger in the fire of hell. Jesus is saying to us that there's very little space between hating someone, ridiculing someone, calling someone names, and murder. It just takes the right conditions. Amir Shimani is here today, and he's a captain in the Garden Police, and he would tell you that most, most murders are crimes of passion. I mean... So that same propensity to bully or make fun of the dorky kid or the fat kid 
or what, of anyone to get the approval of the group and to make others feel outside the group uh, and feel to be less than you. In other words, to try to place ourselves in a, above other people, to, to create us and them categories, we're in, they're out, to sell our soul to be accepted by the crowd is at the heart the same kind of selfishness that leads to murder. That's what Jesus is saying. The preservation of self and glorification of self can become murder in the right conditions. If you ask David at Psalm 18, would he ever have a failure like Bathsheba? He would have laughed in your face. But see, he had to get out of denial. Psalm 51 is, he says, I recognize I have a great capacity for sin and I need a great savior. As John Newton recognized, you are more wretched than you ever could have believed, but you are more loved than you could have possibly imagined. So you gotta, you gotta get out of denial. Secondly, you gotta repent, you have to come clean. Psalm 51 says, wash well my iniquity and cleanse me from sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done evil what is in your sight. So you're right in the verdict and justified when you judge. Full confession of sin before God and others, if, if necessary, no, no blame shifting, no excuses, no rationalization, no minimization. He, David didn't do that in any of this Psalm 51. In 2 Corinthians 2, we see after they had rebuked the person, corrected them, the man who was having sex with his father's wife, uh, he repented, and yet then they kept kind of, <laughs> they kept pushing on him. They, they didn't accept him back into the church. And then Paul says, sufficient for just one is the punishment which is inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He says, so, you know, he's repented. He's come clean. So forgive him. Second Corinthians 7, Paul is talking about how he, the church related to his rebuke of them. He says, yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so we were, were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance, and that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow brings repentance and leads to salvation and leaves no regret. It's not shame. It's conviction. But, godly, but worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow brings repentance. Worldly sorrow brings death. So there's a difference between godly sorrow, repentance, and worldly sorrow, feeling sorry. Uh, Saul, David's predecessor, uh, always felt shame and sorrow every time he got caught sinning, <clears throat> but he didn't change. Being sorry has no benefit if there's no corresponding change in our beliefs and actions. Being sorry is often a way to control our accusers instead of truly changing and depending on God for strength. It's a way to stop the dialogue. I mean, how many times have in an argument, maybe someone who has really wronged you says, I told you I was sorry. Yeah, great. You just never acted like it. You told me I was sorry in hopes that that would stop the repercussions, but it doesn't. Sorry is often a way to mitigate the consequences of being caught. 
to mitigate the shame and embarrassment of the moment. There are, often there are even tears and the appearance of remorse. But the true evidence of repentance and not sorrow is not covering your tracks. Think about this. David wrote, wrote Psalm 51 for them to sing and worship. He wrote this for everybody. He's like, he's totally uncovered himself. He's saying, hey, everybody, I just want you to get this. I've done some really evil stuff. But God is amazing in his grace. And then he had to trust God with the consequences because he didn't know that when he confessed and he made it public that they wouldn't decide this guy shouldn't be king anymore. Right? I mean, that'd been a pretty reasonable response for this to say, this guy is more evil than we even comprehended. We thought he was a man after God's own heart. And so he, he, he honestly, he puts it out there, and is trusting God with results. Repentance helps us realign with God. All sin is a kind of idolatry that we've delighted in some sin more than we have in Christ, and the result is sin. True repentance then takes us out of the shadows of self-deception and into the searching light of grace and truth. True repentance then allows God to examine us and say, let's deal with this. Let's get it done with. Verse 4, against you only have I said what is evil in your sight. Repentance helps us see the self-deception in our own hearts. Against God only? Really? I mean, think about it. He sinned. First of all, he's really sinned against Bathsheba. I would say Uriah might be a little upset. Uh, feel like it was personal. <laughs> uh, he's dead. He had, he had violated his marriage law vows that he'd made to his seven other wives. He had sinned against his children and brought sexual drama into the family that ended up rippling through his family like a tornado in a trailer park. Uh, I mean, it was devastation. Uh, he sinned against Joab, the commander of the army, and asking him to, to participate in his sin, he sinned against the people of Israel who expected him to be a righteous king. It's a long list. You see, but underneath all sins, there is a sin against God, and that leads us then to a sin against people. When we don't love God with all our heart, we don't love our neighbors ourselves. Underlying that is a sin against God that causes us to then sin against people. We're pursuing something in the place of God. What was David really looking for on that roof when he rejected God's presence and promise as the solution and chose the violation of Bathsheba as the alternative? Why did David think the new would solve the longing in his soul that the seven wives and multiple concubines had not satisfied? Because the new won't solve your problems. It's a lie. When David sent Bathsheba home burdened with shame, do you think he felt better or worse? So why do we need to repent? Why do we need to repent? It's forgiven. Remember, this is in the context of Jesus teaching us how to pray. So why do we need to repent? First of all, I know I'm out of time, but it's just us. Where are you going to go? You know, uh, 
there's a cost to sin. There are consequences. Why do we not sin? Why do we want to deal with sin? It's covered by the blood of Jesus, but yet there are consequences. How many of you know there's consequences when you sin? I can, I can speed through Garland, and Amir could stop me and give me a ticket. Uh, and and he, would, he could say, I forgive you. I'm sorry, that you'd, sorry that I had to give you this ticket, but you were speeding. But I forgive you. There's still consequences. I still have to deal with the judge. I still have to go to the court. I still have to pay the fine. There are, there are consequences. And all kinds of sins. Sins, <laughs> every sin has consequences. You know, the wages of sin is death. Every sin has some death in it. So when we recognize this, so there are consequences. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked for whatever man sows, this he will also reap. It affects your ability to witness. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So when, when people see your, that your works aren't good, what does it do? It causes them to defame the name of Christ. God's judgment on David said, you have caused the nations around you to defame the name of God. So when you sin, it affects the circle of your influence. Wherever you have influence, when you sin, it, it affects the circle of that influence. So it affects your ability to witness. It creates relational distance between us and God. But here's what I want you to notice something. God hasn't moved, but you have. We feel we're naked and ashamed and undeserving. So it, this, this, you see how it can hinder your prayer life? You feel like you can't pray because, you know, you've got this stuff that's hanging over your head. And so when this is happening, the accuser of the brethren swoops in to create as much distance as possible. I want you to think about the prodigal. Uh, I love the prodigal. He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. The prodigal is a, Jesus tells a story is the prodigal represents us and the father represents God. And so the prodigal gets mad and he goes off and spends his inheritance in riotous living but I want you to notice, the father didn't leave. The father stayed in the same place. Who left? The son. The son left. He created the distance, not the father. The father was always in the same place. And even when he repented, the father was in the same place. The father was looking for him to come home. The father was expecting him to come home and ran to meet him when he finally woke up in the pig pen and said, to himself, basically, I'm in a pig pen. What am I doing in a pig pen? What am I doing living like, have you ever said that? What am I doing living like this? I don't have to live like this. I'll just go home and be a slave at my dad's house. Just I'll just work for him, even if he won't allow me to be a son. And the father's Father says, when he gets home, he's, he starts this speech. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. He never even gets to finish the speech. God wraps him up, puts his robe of, on him, which is the robe of righteousness. Did he deserve it any more coming home than when he left or when he was living? Did he ever deserve that robe of righteousness? Do we ever deserve it? No, it is a gift of grace. But God wants us to be as close to him relationally. So this is about prayer when he says, Forgive us our debts. He's saying, 
your sin will make it difficult for you to pray effectively. Deal with your sin. Restore to me the joy of our salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Lastly, as some of you said, thank the Lord. We need to rejoice in our restoration. David had lost the joys of his salvation, but he hadn't lost of salvation, his salvation. He had lost the joy of his salvation, but he hadn't lost his salvation. Our propensity to sin is in direct proportion of our loss of joy in God. Out on the hillside shepherding sheep, God had found David and there had fathered him and loved him and taught him things, incredible things about the Godhead and about the future, about what he was going to do and his plans. He never felt God more near. When he was running for his life, Saul was trying to kill him. It just seemed like every day was just a, a barely escape. In that adrenaline-fueled life, he also felt and experienced the faithfulness of God powerfully. And he felt that God was near. But in the palace, somehow in the palace, in the dailiness, busyness of life, his relationship with God had become mundane and boring. God felt distant, and he felt like something was miss missing. Bathsheba seemed like maybe that's what he needed. The joy of your salvation is based on realizing how lost you were, rejoicing in what Christ has done for you on your behalf, and rejoicing in who you are now in Christ. The way you maintain the joy of your salvation is you put your focus on the work of Christ. Because of Christ, he's not going to cast you away from his presence. Because of Christ... And his work, he is not going to take his Holy Spirit from you because of his steadfast love. It's steadfast. It means you didn't earn it and you can't lose it. And it's amazing grace. And it's going to be lavished upon you with all abundance. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. I just want you to feel and know and believe today. If you feel like God has moved, he hasn't. If you feel like God has determined you're not worthy, he hasn't. If you feel like God has, loves you less, he doesn't. Because what he's always wanting to do is draw us in. The prodigal, still filthy from the pig pen, he didn't say, go take a bath and we'll talk about what you've done. Go clean yourself up. And you've, you've wasted... Now, you've hurt this family. Now we've got less money. We've got less resources because of you. All, there was a list of things. A lot of things. Don't, and we, don't you want to say them? Don't you feel like, I have a right to say these things. I want to say them. You screwed up. You're an idiot. But that's not the father. The father wraps his arms around the pig filth and the mistakes and the brokenness. 
And he says, my son has come home. And that is the basis of our prayer. That's the basis of our prayer. Our Father, forgive us our debts. Oh, I don't want distance. I don't want distance. My shame causes distance, but it's a lie. The, the enemy wants me to run, and he wants me to go to the pig pen. And God wants to bring me home every day and every moment. He wants to embrace me in his righteousness. Amen. All right, I've got to stop now. Okay, before we can start the second service. All right, let's stand. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. If you feel today a distance that God is not as near as he has been in your past, that there were, there were better days behind in your relationship with God when you felt him near and you felt him close, but now you've, you feel distant, I want to tell you that God wants to draw you nearer today than you've ever been. He wants you to continually grow in that to where you feel the joy and know the joy of your salvation. God hasn't moved, but he's not going to punish you because you have. He wants to bring you home. What God, God did all of this because he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. So, Father, everyone in here that's feeling a sense of distance, I pray that you would restore in them the joy of their salvation. They will remember how you saved them. They will remember what you did and what you gave up and will remember who we are now because of what you have done. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I love you. Thank you for being patient. This has been the Life Community Church Podcast. Thank you for listening.